Uh, we are, obviously, as you can see, uh, this will be an introduction to hermeneutics. We uh, changed the preaching schedule around a little bit more, so Parker's going to start Titus this morning and then pick it up again back in uh, December, uh, when I will be gone also to uh, Kentucky for a couple of weeks, and then... <clears throat> And then uh, maybe sometime after that we'll pick, a, pick it back up. There's a whole uh, a series of lessons on this, but we're going to introduce it, uh, see how far we get uh, this morning, and then when we can ever we can pick it back up again, we'll do that. Uh, but this also goes well with the last um, section where we looked at the doctrine of Scripture when we did an overview of it. I don't have any handouts, however, I do uh, have handouts uh, as we go along and we're able to continue to look at this, and I even put together some uh, practice uh, exercises, so things for you to take what we've learned and then apply it, which is also what we try to do in our men's study, is we've taught on hermeneutics several times, and so our goal now as we go through books of the Bible is to apply it, um, the actual practice of it, uh, to specific texts. So hermeneutics, does anybody know what hermeneutics is? You could define uh, hermeneutics. I was told of a, well, never mind, I won't say that. But who, who can define what hermeneutics is? Does anybody? Rightly dividing the word of God. Okay, all right, rightly dividing the word of God. We could. When to apply it, like this was for, was for the Israelites then at that time, and this is how we apply it here. Okay, that's a, that's a. That's a component of hermeneutics, and so that's good. That's right. That's part of progressive revelation. Anybody else want to give it a shot? That was good. Hermeneutics. Somebody comes up to you and says, tell me about hermeneutics, and you give them a blank stare or a ready answer. Which, which is it going to be? Huh? <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's get some help here. Uh, here's some definitions of hermeneutics. Uh, Roy Zuck wrote a standard basic book on uh, hermeneutics. I think it's called Basics of Bible Interpretation. Do you remember that? Y'all recently got it. Anyway, Roy Zuck, he calls it this, which is probably the most helpful and succinct, succinct definition, the science and art of interpretation. If you don't want to write all this stuff down, uh, I can print these slides out. Please forgive me for not doing that uh, this morning. Another one, Jim Rosscup. He was a professor out at the Master Seminary. Uh, defines it this way. Hermeneutics determines the methods, techniques, rules, or principles which will best serve in getting at the proper interpretation of any part of the Bible. That's focusing a little bit more on the uh, science part. Another uh, says this in an article on hermeneutics in a standard work. The working out of rules and methodologies for interpreting scriptural text. Another says this, the discipline that tries to establish the principles used in exegesis and exposition. Now essentially, then to summarize all of that, it's rules and principles that direct, instruct, and govern the effort to understand what the Bible means by what it says. And that's really the idea, to know what does the Bible mean by what it says. There's a whole history of interpretation, which we are not going to get into that part. Uh, we're simply going to look at it uh, on its own, although that is helpful. But it's basically how do we know um, the right way to approach a text of Scripture to faithfully draw out of it the meaning that God uh, intended in it. And so we'll talk about all of that down the road in, in detail. Uh, 
So there is a uh, there is there are important uh, rules. There are important things that we need to be aware of uh, before we come to scripture. Some of these you will be familiar with. Some of them uh, maybe will be a little more specific and helpful. Uh, things that you haven't thought of before. Let me give you one classic uh, text here in Luke twenty four. Uh, Verse 27, you remember it. Jesus is resurrected. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And he says this in verse 26. Well, actually verse 25, he says, He said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures and all the scriptures. So basically, he interpreted the scriptures for them and all those things, in this case particularly, that are relevant to his coming, his death and resurrection, and all that that entailed. Which was throughout the Old Testament, but they had missed. And we could argue they missed it in part because they did not do proper hermeneutics. They did not apply themselves to properly understand the text of Scripture, which, uh, as you know, when Jesus goes, is dealing with these Jewish leaders throughout the gospel accounts, uh, he is essentially confronting, confronting them repeatedly on their failure to understand what the text meant by what it said. And they, they failed to apply proper hermeneutics. They had perverted their understanding, therefore, of God's word. Let me give you just a couple other places um, to look at where the actual word, the Greek term from which we get hermeneutics comes from. One is in 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> and we'll look at a few places there. Just to begin to fill out the idea here. 1 Corinthians 12. So now in 1 Corinthians 12, he's dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts and particularly uh, tongues, among other things. But this term is used in relation to the gift of tongues and the Greek word behind this is uh, well the verb is hermeneu neu. Uh, that's the term that's behind here it's, the noun would be hermeneutics he says in verse 10 and another it's talking about gifts uh, another effecting of miracles another prophecy to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues he says it again in verse 30 that there is, uh, at the end, all do not interpret, do they? He says in chapter 14, verse 5, he mentions it again. Uh, one speaks in tongues, uh, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongue, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. He says the same thing in verse 13, and the same thing in verses 26 through 28. So there were tongues, there was this language that was not understood without someone to interpret it, to explain its meaning. Otherwise, it was unintelligible. And more importantly, to Paul's point, it was unhelpful. And it was not uh, doing, accomplishing the purpose for which God gave it. Uh, and there's, so there's many, many other examples. The term is used, either the verb or the noun. Uh, I'm counting up references here well over 20 times. Uh, in the New Testament. Let me give you a definition of one standard lexicon explaining this word. And so I'll just hit some of the highlights. 
they give these following uh, definitions. To translate from one language to another. So it can be translated, uh, <laughs> either translate uh, or uh, interpret. Um, in a number of languages, it's the equivalent of translate or to interpret is an idiomatic expression. For example, it comes out in our language as, or in our words it means, or in our mouth it says. So that would be dealing with the term uh, applied to its uh, usage and translation, taking from one language to another language and giving the understanding uh, in another language. Uh, another way that it's used is to explain on a more extensive and formal level the meaning of something which is particularly obscure or difficult to comprehend. And they list there the reference we read earlier, Luke 24, 7. So that's the basic idea of hermeneutics is to understand what is meant by what's being said, to have a clear understanding of it, to come to the right meaning of what has been said. That is the idea. So stop me at any point, as usual. I'm going to keep going. If you have anything to say, interject, question, then go ahead and uh, uh, make that known. Well, let's then look at some of the dangers of bad hermeneutics. What are some of the things that can come about if we don't rightly interpret the Word of God? So I've listed for you here one, two, three, four, five. Five dangers of bad hermeneutics. The first one is the danger of misapplication. If we don't rightly understand the text, then we're not going to rightly apply the text. That's basic. We have to understand what God is saying so we can know what to do, how that should affect our life, how that affects our decision making, how that affects um, how we apply it to the diverse circumstances that come into our life. Let me give you a few examples here. And these are borrowed. Here's one that was given by a person. A Christian in military service, and these are true stories. A Christian in military service read his Bible one morning to get his verse for the day. He later turned up AOL. In other words, he was gone. He deserted. When he had been located and dealt with in due military fashion, one of his buddies asked what had possessed him to pull off such a thing. He replied, I read the word to get some guidance for the day. The verse I read says, Arise, get you out from this land. So I took that as God speaking to me and I got out of this place. In this case, he read Genesis 31, 13, a verse which in its context was intended to apply specifically to the case of Jacob and not necessarily to another person. So here's a person who got his verse for the day, Arise and get up out of the land, and he took it and ran with it and was uh, then suffered the consequences. Here's another story. There's two more. A girl at a Philadelphia Bible college miserably flunked an exam. Uh, the professor called her in and asked why. And she responded, I read the verse that says, the Spirit will give you in that day what you shall say. And so I did not feel I needed to study. She had misapplied such verses as Matthew 10, 19 through 20, and Mark 13, 11. So that was a case of bad hermeneutics. And therefore, she applied it in a bad way and suffered the consequences. Uh, here's another one. One more. The Dallas Morning News one morning in March of 1964, again, true stories, ran the story of a woman who was one of four candidates for governor of Texas in the Democratic Party. I'm glad this was a Democrat and... Uh, well, the story told how she was convinced that the Bible told her 
she should win the nomination. She had received the official list of names. Here's her reasons. Uh, she had received the official list of names from the Texas State Democratic Committee and seen her name printed last. Do you know where this is going? She read, yes, in her Bible, the words of Matthew 19.30, many that are first will be last and the last first. And that was enough for her. She built her, she put her confidence on that. She felt she had a word from God that was going to be first. Needless to say, she lost. She had misapplied the verse. Now these are, of course, rather silly. They will get more serious as we go along. But, but you can see if we don't rightly understand it, if we have a wrong approach to Scripture, we're going to apply it wrongly. We're going to live the Christian life wrongly. And we're going to do foolish things and things that are going to have consequences in our life. So what God gave to us to be a help to us, to be a light to us, can uh, be something else if we don't rightly uh, understand it. I hope that has not happened any of those examples to you, at least not to that extreme uh, as these that we read. Here's another one. A danger of abusing Scripture. If we have bad hermeneutics, we can misapply Scripture and we can abuse Scripture. Uh, Again, I'll be borrowing from someone else. Uh, someone else gives this example. <clears throat> I heard another example of allegory that was out of control at a conference where one of the speakers talked about John 11, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Does everybody know the story? The resurrection of Lazarus. This was his interpretation. Lazarus is a symbol of the church. And what we have here is a vivid picture of the rapture of believers. The resurrection of Lazarus is the church going through the rapture. Afterward, the speaker came up and said, uh, this is uh, John, did you ever see that in the text before? I tried to be honest but diplomatic. You know, I doubt that anyone has ever seen that in the text before. You are the first. I heard a funny skit one time uh, back when I was in a college age group and it was this, this person was uh, kind of teasing about some Approaches of charismatics in this case. So this isn't meant to pick on, but it was kind of funny, the example. And he, and he was going on this rant, and he was saying, you know, he's coming to the text, and he's saying, I'll show you things there that you've, that you've uh, says, I'll show you things that aren't even there. And he was talking about his ability to have insight into the word. And that's, in fact, what happens. And this is, you know, as a footnote, that's one of the dangers uh, when we don't read things all the way through, and we don't read things in context, when we have just a verse for the day. Or if um, we bounce around a lot in the scriptures, uh, we, we do have some dangers of falling into these things. If that is our only method of understanding the Bible, if that's the primary way that we approach it, then we are more susceptible to misinterpret it. That's why we need to have a systematic, a comprehensive, a contextual understanding of all of scripture. And those are things we will talk about later. A little more seriously here... Um, there's the danger of wrong doctrine. The danger of wrong doctrine. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, or Matthew 15. Matthew 15. You're familiar with this passage? I'm sure you have poured over and meditated on the sermons that we did on this a while back. Matthew 15, 1-9. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 1. And they come up to him and they're questioning him on a, or accusing him on an issue of the tradition of their elders. 
And he says, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Of course, that was not a command of Moses. It was a command of the rabbis that had been passed down to them. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would have been helped, would have helped you has been given to God. He's not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In this case, it was bad hermeneutics, a bad understanding of the heart of what God had said in that commandment because of the perversion of their tradition which had come to take a place greater than God's word. That could also go under misapplication. Um, But I put it here because this is a much more serious and intense matter. It crosses the line into legalism and makes the application of Scripture a matter of doctrine. And in this case, a wrong doctrine. A wrong doctrine that led to the uh, disobedience. Let me give you another, um, even more clear examples here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's consider 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we look at the seriousness of this. The teachers here that Paul is addressing are very possibly the teachers that he warned about in Acts chapter 20 verse 30 when he was talking to the Ephesian elders and he said, some even among yourselves are going to rise up and they're going to lead others astray. They're going to teach wrong doctrine. They're going to teach contrary to the truth of God's word. Very likely the teachers um, that he's referring to uh, here in uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, Of these teachers, uh, it is said... It is not so much that they set out to be heretical. Excuse me, I said 1 Timothy 3. I think we're uh, really looking, excuse me, in 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 3. Um, where he says, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Let's just look at it. He says, Nor pay attention to myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. Um, commenting on this, it said that it's not so much that they set out to be heretical. One, one commentator, R. Kent Hughes, uh, helpfully says this. It's not so much that they set out to be heretical. They simply wanted to go deeper into the scriptures. They wanted to go beyond the simple exegesis of Paul. And by giving people and events allegorical meaning, simple stories would reveal fantastic truths. They did not set out to abandon the gospel doctrine that salvation is by faith alone, but in fact, their progressive accretions smothered the gospel. So in other words, here they came in and rather than applying simple rules of hermeneutics, letting scripture stand on its own, they wanted to stand out as having a secret insight into the text of scripture and it was leading them astray and more importantly, through their influence, it was leading others astray from the truth of God and from the truth of the gospel. And that then would go very well with what the Pharisees had done with their traditions, coming at it from another angle, but the effect is the same. He says this in chapter 6, flip over, chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, also speaking of false teachers. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, very important, 
those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're describing the... The way that these false teachers pervert and distort the truth of God's word and lead others astray, which is significant. That's why the elders Paul mentions in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 verses 9 and 11 must be able to teach. And in Titus he adds this, they must be able to teach... Uh, sound doctrine, and they must be able to refute those who contradict. So, so there's wrong doctrine that floats around that vies for the minds and the hearts of God's people, and there are to be those who can answer these errors that come in, and they answer it by rightly dividing the truth of God's word. By rightly dividing the truth of God's word. So doctrine matters because we are protected by doctrine. We are protected by doctrine. We are protected when we have a sound understanding of God's word. He says of Timothy, let me just read to you these verses. And pointing out these things after he addresses the, the false teaching that was coming into the church there, the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He says this to Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. He says at the end of that chapter, take, verse 15, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And that verse has always stood out to me, that last verse uh, phrase there in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 4. By failing to persevere in these things, by failing to address the false doctrine that was coming in to the church and vying for the minds and the hearts of God's people, by failing to do that, he was not then ensuring their salvation. And what does he mean by that? What is Paul's instructions? It means this. Simply that when doctrine is allowed to come in, it leads the hearts of some astray. And rather than being protected in God's truth, they can fall away. Now here, those who fall away are those who were not saved, but the means of their not coming all the way, Paul is saying here, is in part because of this false doctrine. And we only know the reality of our salvation uh, which is more specifically to what he's saying to Paul, by the fact that we endure in the truth, that we remain and keep on in the truth. And so it's very important then that we have a right understanding of God's word and we persevere in it. Uh, so there's also then the danger of deception. The danger of deception. Wrong doctrine and the danger of deception. Truth then protects us. Truth then protects us. There is, in some of these of course there's overlap, uh, not only is there wrong doctrine, and we need to know right doctrine, which comes from a right hermeneutic, but there is uh, deception. Truth is a protector, and it provides the criteria to exercise discernment. It provides the criteria to exercise discernment. Let me give you one verse here in 1 John chapter 4. 
Uh, <clears throat> let me go a little quicker here so we won't look at all these verses. He says this in verse 4, 6. So he says, test the Spirit. So there's teachers that were going out who were being led by the Spirit of Antichrist in the language of John. And they were teaching wrong doctrine. And so then there's the Spirit of Truth, which had been delivered to them, was taught to them by those who had the Spirit of God. And he says this in verse 6. We are from God, or verse 5 we'll start with. Um, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Error. Now here he's referring to the testimony that was, it was within a believer when they hear the truth, that it confirms it as the truth in their heart, and they then are able to discern error. In this case, it is the apostolic doctrine that was, um, that was a given uh, to them. And so, ultimately then, there's an aspect where our hermeneutic uh, is energized only by the Spirit of God to protect us ultimately from error. But here the important thing to notice is that there is a Spirit of truth, and it is that Spirit of truth who uses the truth to protect us from deception. But the truth that he has provided in this case was the doctrine that came through the apostles. For us, it is the completed and written word of God. Early on, there were attacks on both the person of Christ, the nature of the atonement, the resurrection, the relationship of the believer to the law of God. All of this is in the New Testament. The relationship of Jews and Gentile in the light of gospel, the future plans of God for Israel, the relationship of Christ to the old covenant, the nature of saving faith, the coming of the Antichrist, and the nature of the assurance of salvation, and the list could go on. And all of that is bound up in a right doctrine and a right understanding of the truth of God. And we will remember that Satan is called the one who deceives the whole world. Okay, let me give you one other verse here. And this is, now I'm just moving into, the devil is a deceiver and a liar, and he is the most active in the area of religion. So two verses that are listed there for that, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then 11, 1 through 3, Paul is addressing false teachers who had come into Corinth, and he says, I'm concerned I'm anxious, I'm worried about the, the reality that maybe as Satan had deceived Eve in the garden, that he may have come in and he has deceived some of you and led some of you astray. Later in that chapter he says that he appears as an angel of light and so we're not surprised that those who are his emissaries also appear as an angel of light. So the point is, is that the devil is a deceiver and a liar and he's most active in the area of religion. So all of these things then are dangers that come if we don't understand God's word rightly. We can misapply scripture, abuse it, end up with wrong doctrine and not be protected and more susceptible to lies, more uh, open to deception, and more open to the lies then of Satan and the influence of the evil one. And remember, he is most active in the area of religion. Okay, what are some starting points then? Well, this is some of the material that we've already covered when we looked at the doctrine of Scripture. First, we understand that Scripture is from God, so it will go beyond finite man. And it requires the Holy Spirit. We mentioned that in uh, 1 John chapter 4. 
It's also from man, so it's understandable and it's for our good. It requires diligence, it requires hard work, and it requires the application of it to our lives, the specific, uh, and here, the specific principles of uh, hermeneutics that we'll look at, the rules. You'll remember that when we speak of inspiration, we're talking Inspiration, we're talking about the document itself, not the writers. They're tools, uh, they're simply, they were simply the tools used by the Holy Spirit. And what He's given us is His Word, and we are to rightly understand it. Let me look at you, point you to one other passage here, Second Peter. And I want to just, want you to observe just three things. Three things in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. So, Peter is again writing, and of course he's writing in the context of false teachers who had come in and those who were mocking the reality of Christ's return. He says this, um, Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That's verse 14 of chapter 3. Regard the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom giving, given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some are hard... Th- in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Now I want to just make out three points relative to what we're talking about in hermeneutics. Three simple points from that. The first is this. There are things in scripture that are hard to understand. Right? We're familiar with that verse for that very reason. There are things that are hard to understand. We're talking about supernatural realities. We're talking about revelation that is from an infinite God, who is transcendent and who is holy. Secondly, notice this, that false teachers then and workers of Satan will seek to distort the truth of God, particularly those things that are hard to understand, all of Scripture, but particularly those things that are hard to understand. It is not uncommon for false teachers or cults to take those obscure things of Scripture and build a whole system of doctrine on it, uh, ignoring the plain teaching of Scripture throughout. Again, these are all points that we'll deal with again. Notice a third thing then about what Paul is say, Peter is saying in that verse. One, that Scripture is hard. There are things that are hard to understand. Secondly, that false teachers and workers of Satan will seek to distort them. But notice thirdly what he says, that it is understandable. It is clear enough to refute error and to be a tool for growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are things to understand, but Scripture was given to us to understand, and overall, it is clear and able to be an instrument for our growth and protection from deception. When we speak of Scripture, it is an accommodation to men from God. However, it is an accommodation that is entirely consistent with truth. What do I mean by that? That's accommodation to man. I'm going to take a shot. Yeah, I, I thought when I said that, maybe that's... Uh, if I say something that's unclear, obscure, please tell me, because otherwise I'm just going to keep going and assuming that y'all are just marveling at the amazing presentation <laughs> of truth that is being given to you. All right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
yeah, that's good enough. Accommodation is a theological idea that's also related to just God himself and is he understandable. So God is incomprehensible in his fullness, yet he is knowable in truth. So in other words, we, what we know about God, what he reveals about himself, is totally consistent with who he is. He's true. He's not other than what he's revealed himself to be, but that doesn't mean that's everything about him. He is inexhaustible in the depths of who he is. So using that idea in terms of scripture, God has accommodated revelation to man himself. In other words, to reveal himself. So it is from the infinite God to finite man, and yet everything he's revealed there to us, though some are hard to understand, is clear. It's the truth, and it is given to us for our good and for our redemption and to even reveal his uh, eternal purposes for us. Okay, well, there's a lot um, here to say. Let me just mention one other verse, however. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, I'm just, we're just introducing the idea this morning. Uh, these aren't the specifics. But I will just run those other screens in front of you to let you know where this is going. Uh, we won't have time to talk about them. So here, Paul's talking to Timothy, saying that you've had the scriptures. We've, we've covered this verse before. I won't go over all that in some detail. Um, that he has learned from childhood the things that, that you've known, the sacred writings. There is referring to the Old Testament. Able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, this is including everything, is inspired by God, profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so again, I want you to just notice a few basic points uh, out of that. One, all scripture, including the Old Testament, was given to clearly lead a person to a saving knowledge of God. So it is understandable. All scripture that is, is from God and it is profitable. It's useful. In other words, it's for our benefit in at least four ways. To teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness and living a righteous life. And so therefore it is to be preached, which is what he goes on into chapter 4. The fact that God's word is not taught is thus the culprit for the error, deception, confusion, and sin that's so rampant in the church, and by that meaning at large. People are not being taught, reproved, corrected, or trained in righteousness. And if that's not happening, what do we expect? Um, That people would be untaught, uncorrected, confronted in their sin, untrained in righteousness, therefore ungodliness would um, mark that life. He also note, note also that it's more than adequate to equip us for everything that is useful and necessary in Christian life and ministry. And in 2 Timothy 2.15, he mentions that in order to accomplish this work, it must be properly understood and interpreted. Be diligent, who can finish that verse, to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Where's Janice? Where's there? Right, all right, and Paul. There it is, rightly dividing the word of truth. All right, so what are the implications of this? That the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Um, that it is uh, true and that it is without error in the original documents. And that what we have are faithful representations of what God gave to his church originally through the actual quill, if you will, of Paul and Peter and all the other writers. It is inerrant and infallible, and and this is something that we really have to understand, and I think we all do understand that, but when we come to God's Word, we come to it as inerrant and infallible and trustworthy. 
that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient. There's so much to say on these, and maybe we'll mention it later. I'm just, again, for time's sake, going to mention it. It is perspicuous. Who, who has ever heard of the perspicuity of Scripture? Has anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand. Okay, Dina's heard of that. So that's a big fancy word. It just means it's clear. It's understandable. Um, you can use that in a sentence, by the way, you know, still today. That's just what the word just means, clear. Okay, that's, that's uh, Tina's sentence. The meaning of the word perpiscuous is not clear. <laughs> um, the Bible is the priority of church and the individual. And the Bible is understood by historical grammatical interpretation. And there we get into more of the issue of hermeneutics. Um, well, there's a lot that we could say on all of those other things. Let me just make a note here um, about historical and grammatical. And we're going to discuss the principles that are behind this. Who knows what it means to be historical or grammatical interpretation? I mean, what does that mean? Anybody take a shot at it? Well, it's, it means that you, you understand Scripture in the plain and normal sense of language and as you understand anything, that it comes in a historical context and that it comes using actual words and language, real verbs and nouns and so on, and that we understand, we can communicate with each other intelligently, intelligently because of we interpret each other constantly in a historical grammatical context. We, we know what we mean by the words that we use, the phrases that we use. We understand each other because we're in the same culture, living at the same time, speaking the same language, dealing with familiar, uh, the, the, thing, the same things that we're familiar with. That's historical grammatical interpretation. It's not some fancy Bible category. Um, I remember asking a teacher one time in class uh, in seminary, uh, with going over the things that people do with scripture, and this has always just struck me as odd. I'm sure maybe it struck you as odd too. It's like, do people approach, I said, do you know of any examples where people approach other historical documents and try to do the things that they do with scripture? He's like, no, I don't know of any. Well, actually, Matt just corrected us, the Constitution lately. He said, we do see that happening all the time. Uh, no, no. In other words, this is how we understand any historical document. It, by historical grammatical interpretation, the crazy things that people do with Scripture are just mind-boggling to me. How you think we, they, I always think of it in this way, Scripture is so often treated like it's some kind of Ouija board. Like because it's dealing with spiritual matters, you just kind of can put your hand and wait for the Spirit to guide you somewhere. In that case, a false spirit. But it, you just, the ridiculous ways that people handle Scripture is, is amazing. Uh, and they're uncalled for. And we don't do that with any other document, nor should we do it with the Word of God. God wrote to us to be understood and to be clear. And, and that means He wrote to us in a way that by normal process of understanding meaning in a written document, historical, grammatical, we can understand what He meant by what He said. Now, we'll explain what that term... Well, I already did. Historical context using actual words, grammar, and all of those other things. Um... Now, understanding these principles then are going to be very important to the exegetical process. Exegesis just means to draw out the meaning of Scripture. It's not what does it mean to me, but what did it mean to the original hearers. Only after, after this has been 
ascertain can we legitimately move into application. The meaning of the text then in historical grammatical is, I like this phrase, frozen in time. It doesn't change. In other words, whatever Peter wrote meant the same, what it needs to mean to us is exactly what it meant to Peter. We don't, it doesn't, the meaning of that text does not change. The application of that text changes as different circumstances arise through the history of the church. But the meaning of the text does not change. It does not change according to culture, political, social, or geographical situation. Uh, A big fancy way for feminist, liberal scholars, and others to attack the word of God and to take away from the plain meaning is you'll hear this sometimes, well, that's just cultural, or things like that. And in some cases, it is cultural. But how do we determine that? Not everything is just cultural. In other words, they'll say, feminists will say, well, that male patriarchal, male dominant language is just, that's how it was in that kind of, you know, up until now we've been released into feminism. Is that true? Well, it's not true. And, but we have, we don't just say it's not true, you know. We have reasons why it's not true. In other words, there's, there's real, sorry, I was inspired. Um, there are reasons why it's not true. In other words, that we can show from the text where something is cultural and where something is not cultural. And that kind of stuff is the, the, in the arena of historical grammatical interpretation. Um, Well, that's a part of the homosexual argument, too. That was just in that times. Now we've advanced. Right. Right. And that's a great area to discuss, and that brings up a lot of other issues, but we're out of time. So uh, let me pray. Wow. Um, Father, thank you again for the privilege of taking the time to look at your word and to uh, learn the principles that help us to understand uh, what you meant by your word and how we might uh, take those things and meditate on that truth and apply it to our life so that we could uh, experience the benefits that Paul talks about to be uh, corrected, reproved, taught, instructed, and trained up in your word to be more like your son, who is um, the eternal word. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.